At one point in high school, I sat across from my friend and she asked, do you believe I'm going to hell? At that moment, I was paralyzed. My high school self knew what I had been taught through my Lutheran upbringing. Yet, as I sat across from one of my closest friends, a professed pagan, there was a resounding discord between my head and my heart. I answered with an uneasy, I don't know. In actuality, I knew very little about paganism, but driven by a deep sense of curiosity, compassion, and care, I desired to know more. So I turned to the books and read up on the subject. I was surprised by what I discovered. Many of the traditions, principles, and beliefs of my Lutheran faith were similar to those of pagan traditions. But through reflecting on my friend's day-to-day -day actions, uh, sorry, there were, of course, notable differences, but through reflecting on my friend's day-to-day -day actions, I found that in the end, we were more alike than we were different. Images of bubble, bubble, boil, and trouble were replaced by individuals on a divine spiritual journey seeking to connect with nature and worship a chosen deity. It became difficult for me to go to my Lutheran church. If there was a God that was all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, couldn't that God be a goddess? Commonly referred to in the Christian doctrine as Father, wouldn't this God understand the principle that the combination of nature and nurture endows each person with a unique lens through which they view the world and the higher power? I decided that if there was a higher power I was willing to believe in, they would be adaptable to the details. I drew a parallel between God and tea. Everyone takes their tea differently, yet the rigidly religious seem to declare that tea is only tea in its purest form. If you were to add honey, cream, or sugar, it's in some way inferior. Yet for me, I choose to replace fear with compassion, division with love, and tolerance with the sense of celebration motivated by curious understanding. I juxtapose tolerance and celebration intentionally. In short, tolerance is not enough. Tolerance feels like a passive permission to exist in the way a lingering illness is tolerated until it is overcome. Tolerance seems to denote a sort of putting up with of something that we hope will one day go away or otherwise become irrelevant. It's reductive and insulting to apply, to apply this idea to one another or the beautiful intricacies of identity. As I grew into adulthood, I became familiar with my own uneasy response of, I don't know, even as I discovered my own otherness. As I discovered my own place among the GLBTQ community, the very same question confronted me in the mirror every day. Do you believe I'm going to hell? I was already versed in the typical biblical responses, yet rather than dwell in any sense of self-loathing or denial, I approached my own identity with the same compassion, unity, and celebratory curiosity I'd applied to my friend. I quickly accepted my own self-image as unique, intricate, and beautiful. I am privileged to state that personally, these were simple steps I took in drama school, practically submerged in the alphabet soup of LGBTQIA and all the other letters that make up these wide-ranging identities. 
This past week, we celebrated National Coming Out Day, and I am reminded that for many, what for me were simple first steps can sometimes seem like unfathomable leaps into the unknown. Again, I wish I had a sufficient answer. Yet for those struggling with their own sense of otherness, my deepest wish for you is a gentle compassion, love, and celebration motivated by curious understanding. When I was a kid, I had a recurring nightmare that I was in the living room of our house and there was a witch. She was the quintessential creepy Halloween witch with greenish skin and a pointy black hat, raggedy robes, and long bony fingers. In the dream, the fingers were the scariest part because she was poking around the house trying to find me so she could tickle me. Look, I hate being tickled, okay? I've always hated it. And being tickled by an evil witch with extra uncomfortable fingers, it was literally the stuff of my nightmares. Usually in this dream, I would crouch behind one of the chairs squished between the back of the chair and the corner of the wall and wait, breathing shallowly, hoping she wouldn't find me. The dream would always end when she would find me. And there I would be, trapped between the wall and the furniture as her scary face peered over the back of the chair. In later years, I was fascinated by any story involving a witch. Hansel and Gretel, The Wizard of Oz, Wicked, among others. It was that childhood fear that drove the fascination. I particularly loved reading the book Wicked, which the later musical sensation was based on, because it had such a rich exploration of Elphaba's past and her relationship with Glinda, the wicked witch and the good witch. Now witches are, unlike the other monsters that we are exploring this month, real. Maybe not real in the same way that Hansel and Gretel or Wicked would make them seem, but there are thousands upon thousands of people who practice modern forms of paganism, or Wicca, among others. The 2014 Pew Research Study determined almost one million people in the United States identify as practicing paganism or Wicca. That's way more than identify as Unitarian Universalist. Many of these practitioners explore and use forms of spells or workings and manipulation of energy or magic. Although many do not believe that this is a supernatural thing, instead it is part of the natural world that intentions and power can influence. Within Unitarian Universalism, there is a large group called the Covenant of UU Pagans, which exists to uplift, support, and connect Unitarian Universalist pagans and encourage our Unitarian Universalist congregations to honor Earth-centered traditions, to use music, dance, and ritual more often in our services. Here at the fellowship, many of our members identify as pagan, and we have a group that meets monthly 
to honor the sacred cycle of the seasons. All of this to say, clearly there is a lot more to witches than the historical demonization of them. And I honor the pagan religious path as a powerful and valid path toward inspiration, meaning, and connection. So why is it that witches have such a bad rap? Why are they found among the monsters of Halloween, feared and maligned by so many in the past and in the present? Historically, the answer lies in a combination of societal stress and the persecution of otherness. Yes, the church had a lot to do with it, giving religious backing to the hunting, trial, and execution of thousands of people found guilty of the crime of witchcraft. And I'm not excusing the historical Christian church for its crimes in this matter. However, I want to take a moment to recognize that with or without the church, the original answer remains the same, societal stress and the persecution of otherness. I took a class in seminary that was taught by three professors, an ELCA Lutheran pastor, a Zen Buddhist priest, and an Islamic professor of religion. The aim of the course was to explore religious dialogue across the range of themes. One day, someone asked the Islamic professor, I can't recall, maybe it was me, if the world would just be better off without religion. Far fewer wars, terrorists, hate crimes, all of that. History without the Inquisition or witch hunts. This Islamic professor was thoughtful for a moment. And then he said, humans will always find a way to hide behind the greatest good that they can think of to accomplish their own selfish, hateful, or violent ends. He went on to explore various non-religiously motivated evils in our world and what people were hiding behind. The war at that time in Iraq, freedom. Hitler's extermination of millions of Jews, disabled people, and others, purity. The eugenics movement, science, and improved health. I could go on. Who thinks freedom or purity or science and improved health are evil? But of course they can be twisted to accommodate evil acts, and people often hide behind their idea of God to commit atrocities. The professor's point was that God is often the greatest good that people can conjure in their minds. But this does not make the idea of God evil. God also inspires incredible faith, hope, generosity, and altruism. It just makes humans humans. So I do not mean to minimize the role of faith, religion, God, or the devil in the centuries of witch hunts. Please do not hear me minimizing that. But neither do I want us to casually brush off this history with an easy explanation of religious fervor and outdated theology. It's too easy to do that and then think, we don't do that. 
humans are still humans, and this kind of othering and persecution can and still does happen today. I called my sermon this morning Monsterfication because I hoped that we could explore together the idea that humans make monsters out of the things that frighten us. As we heard from Dr. Christine Contrada in our reading earlier, for the author of the witch-hunting manual Malleus Maleficarum, the fear was women, particularly women who didn't conform. Quote, these willful females were often independent professionals, healers, midwives. The fear of female power often targeted elderly women who were marginal in society because they had lost the oversight of male kin and their reproductive role after menopause, which was terrifying. This is what it means to other someone to minimize their humanity, to make them into a two-dimensional figure with caricature features. Any propaganda artist understands this powerfully. The propaganda of the Third Reich whipped up fear of Jews, while in our own country, the Japanese were described and envisioned in media as large-toothed or even fanged animals. Propaganda does a really good job and often makes people into vermin. If you Google propaganda, rats are the most common image or some sort of beast or monster. The recent attention to Native American residential schools and the atrocities committed in those institutions reminds us that the first director of one of these schools, a US military officer, famously said that the goal of the schools was to, quote, kill the Indian in the child and save the man. This belittling of identity, separating it entirely from the person's humanity, Indian, man. This is what othering looks like. And when that is combined with societal stress, things can get very scary very quickly. The first church in Salem, Massachusetts is a Unitarian Universalist church. On their own website, they describe their historical role in the Salem witch trials of the early 1690s. You see, Unitarians are the descendants of Puritans, along with our religious cousins, the Congregationalists. Now this is what they have to say on their church website. Quote, two of our full members were excommunicated and executed in the ensuing events of that year, Giles Corey and Rebecca Nurse. In addition, many members of our church participated in and supported the witch hunt that quickly consumed the entire area. Many of these people have later recanted and publicly apologized. They continue on their website to say there were no real witches executed in 1692. There were only innocent women and men falsely accused in a mass hysteria that underneath had as much to do with personal vendettas, grudges, and greedy land grabs. The real evil that existed in Salem did not reside in the 136 people who were imprisoned and the 20 more who were executed 
Rather, it lay in the accusers and judges who believed that what they were doing was righteous and holy. To understand the larger context for witch hunts involves being aware of the extreme anxiety and tensions that existed across Europe and later the English colonies and to heed the human impulse to scapegoat the other during times of social turmoil and conflict. End quote. Two of the stressors that were among many facing the colonists in Salem were a string of very harsh winters in a time that was marked by cold. And this is fascinating. Witch hunts all seemed to fall between the mid-1400s and the mid-1700s, which scientists and geologists note was a time of globally suppressed temperatures. They call it the Little Ice Age. And the coldest winters in our hemisphere fell between 1680 and 1730, right when we see what was happening in Salem. Also, the Massachusetts Bay Colony had recently had its charter revoked and replaced in 1691 with one that gave the English crown far more power than it had had previously over the colony. The colonists were terrified of a crackdown from the government and the religious authorities an ocean away. And they had every right to fear that crackdown. It had happened in other colonies. Those stressors, combined with the human impulse to create an other and make it a scapegoat, led to the tragedy of the Salem witch trials, of which our religious ancestors were both the persecutors and the persecuted. As I think about these phenomena, I wonder, what can we as Unitarian Universalists do with our human impulse to monsterfy, to make monsters of those things, especially those people that we fear? And how can we engage with others who might be doing the monsterfying? I can think of a few examples of this impulse the bathroom and sports-related bills that have targeted transgender people in the last several years are an attempt to make trans folks into some sort of threat, when in fact it is they who are far more likely to be the victims or survivors of physical and sexual violence than being the perpetrator. Those who seek to monsterfy trans people are those who are afraid usually afraid of something much different and bigger going on, and whose fear looks like anger and hatred. The monsterfication of undocumented immigrants, especially in recent years, is another example. The use of the words illegal, illegals, or even aliens to name these people and the accusations that they come here to wreak havoc, to incite violence, or to bring illness are ways that those who wish to perpetuate a myth of national homogeneity continue to monstrify those who come to our borders. I also think of the political and social factions in our nation right now, and boy, are they divided how each side wishes to make monsters of the other, whether it be Antifa 
or the movement for black lives or the Proud Boys or QAnon. We can find ourselves appalled at this monsterfication. I can't imagine how they could do that or maybe acknowledging that perhaps we are doing it as well. What does the monster look like? What do they act like? In every case, you can know that you're doing this if the result is something horrible. They don't have much mind, they can't think for themselves, they're dangerous and scary. And without a doubt, these monsters are never real and they are always the result of othering. And of course, our society is under great stress. Climate change, climate crisis, economic crises, rapidly shifting and changing demographics, extreme wealth inequality, and of course, to top it off, a global pandemic that has killed hundreds of thousands of people and left many others with long-term illness while testing the ties that bind our community as we have faced countless shutdowns, mandates, and fights over masks and vaccines. Our faith calls us to what Alex so eloquently said in their reflection, it calls us to compassion, love, celebration rather than simply tolerance, all motivated by curiosity. Our second Unitarian Universalist principle names compassion as a guiding force in our faith, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. Love, love is central, a central theological tenet of our faith. Our call is always to side with love, and I'll get back to that in a moment. Celebration. Our third and first principles call us to celebration rather than simply tolerance by honoring the inherent worth and dignity of every person and by accepting and encouraging each other. And finally, curiosity. I've come to believe that there are many opposites to fear and curiosity is one of them. Curiosity is part of our fourth principle, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning, the stance of wondering, the theological position of asking questions and not being certain. But back to love though, love is another of the opposites to fear. Not mushy romantic love, but the powerful act of revolutionary love, radical love. Our universalist ancestors gave us this gift. It was they who in the 1800s, surrounded by the religious fervor of Christian sects that emphasized hell and damnation. There was actually a very famous sermon at that time by Jonathan Edwards called uh, Sinner in the Hands of an Angry God. It was at that time that our universalist ancestors rejected that fear. They rejected the fear of God and instead embraced a loving God, one that loved all people and would send no one to hell. That's where universalism, the word, comes from, universal salvation. And they believed in a love, a God that was worthy of our love and a God that inspired them to try to love their human siblings the way they believed 
that God loved them. Now, whether you do or do not today believe in the same God that our ancestors believed in, that radical love is still a part of our tradition. It's a part of our modern faith. We reject fear as a tactic. We reject fear as a tactic. And that is a spiritual practice to do. And we embrace love as an act of resistance in the face of societal stressors and forces that try to separate, minimize, other, and monsterfy us and those around us. May we hold our faith close as a comfort and a strength in resistance to fear. May we remember to be compassionate, to celebrate each other and our differences and not simply tolerate them. May we always be curious, guided by wonder. And may we always strive to embody the radical, universalist love that can overcome all evil. Amen. And may it be so.